This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We have two choices before us for today's program. One is to try and do like we did last week and uh, start the show as we usually do before then entering into a lengthy conversation with author James DiEugenio about his book, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case, which time we devoted the entire second and third segments to talking with Jim. We could do that again today, but that'll spread out our, the rest of our interview with him into a third show. I think it would be better on today's program if we just did a minute or two of the usual things like On This Date in History and then devoted the entirety of today's program to finishing up our chat with Jim about his book. We got some excellent feedback from you, dear listener, about last week's program. Uh, Some of you said, let's have more of this. Therefore, we're going to do something we've only done on a couple of occasions previous to this, which is to devote virtually the entire discussion on today's show to finishing up our chat on this topic. So we will simply note at the top here a couple of items from this date in history. Our date in question is the 4th of April. It was on April 4th in 1841, only one month the day after he was inaugurated into office, the ninth president of the U.S., William Henry Harrison, died of pneumonia. And for the first time in American history, the vice president then stepped up to become the chief executive. In this case, It was John Tyler becoming president number 10. On April 4th in 1933, by secret decree, Germany established the National Defense Council to direct a massive rearmament program, which led directly to World War II. And tragically, on this date 45 years ago, April 4th, 1968, and I can remember this like it was yesterday, Martin Luther King was shot to death at a motel in Memphis, Tennessee. He was just 39. Turns out our guest today knows quite a bit about uh, that political assassination as well, but it will not feature in today's program, but may later down the road. When we left off last week's program, we established that the purported presidential assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was obviously a far cry from the lone nut he was portrayed as in the Warren Commission report. As Jim reported, in, in some degree to direct uh, investigations he made down in Louisiana, it's clear that Oswald was being manipulated in the summer before the assassination by some curious characters. A former FBI agent and private eye Guy Bannister, a CIA-affiliated airline pilot who had known Oswald since, uh, since the latter was a youth, named David Ferry, and a rather distinguished businessman named Clay Shaw. So let's return to that discussion with James Diogenio about his book, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. We left off last week concentrating on the events that uh, Jim Garrison uncovered about what was going on in New Orleans before the assassination. This might be a good time to remind you, if you've never seen the movie JFK, Oliver Stone's JFK, you ought to do so. And if you have seen it, it might be time to see it again, this being the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination. We, we last left off talking about Clay Shaw. He was put on trial by Jim Garrison. Um, he was acquitted rather handily, but uh, we should probably start off by something that your book documents pretty darn well. What we now know about the extensive help that Clay Shaw's defense team got 
from the CIA and others to derail Garrison's case against him. Talk about that. As you say, this is one of the major things that came out uh, because of the ARB declassification process. There is no doubt today that both the CIA uh, and the FBI were, were helping Shaw's lawyers. And there's no doubt that they, they really went out of their way to seek out this help. There's meetings between Urban Diamond, who was Shaw's lead lawyer, with the Justice Department. There's meetings between Urban Diamond and the local CIA station chief. There's letters from with Shaw's civil lawyer to CIA officers. And there's no doubt that this help eventually came. How did it happen? There was always this question. Why was Garrison never able to subpoena some of the witnesses that he wanted to subpoena? In my book, I now detail why this didn't happen. Because, in many cases, the CIA would go to a local district judge that Garrison's subpoena was on his desk, and he would talk the judge out of serving the subpoena. This yeah. happened in more than one instance. Once you are served with a subpoena, you are obligated to abide by the subpoena. You're obligated to appear in court, or you've broken the law. Right. And you can be held in contempt. So by the CIA stopping the process at the judge's desk, they were saving the target of the subpoena, the embarrassment of having to explain, well, if you don't have anything to hide, why won't you go down there and testify? <laughs> and I, I'm very specific about when and how this happened. Not only, by the way, did the CIA talk to the judges at the destination of the subpoena, I also note an instance where the CIA got in contact with Edward Eber who was a local Louisiana representative, and actually talked to the judge in New Orleans who was issuing the subpoena. <laughs> so in other words, the CIA, in some of these instances, had it covered at both ends with the judge who wrote it out and the judge who was in receipt of it. This is just one instance that I, I detail in, in the book. There's also an instance where I talk about how the local CIA uh, office intervened with the witness that Garrison had, a guy named Moran, there was an incident, which I detail in the book, in which at the VIP, the VIP lounge at the New Orleans airport, there was this um, bar, okay, where local uh, dignitaries would meet people coming in from foreign countries. Yeah. And of course, Shaw wouldn't quite naturally be there because he ran this international trademark and he had people coming in from South America. Well, Shaw was there one day and signed his name as Clay Bertrand in the VIP lounge book. And the woman, the hostess there, when she heard that Garrison was going after this guy named Clay Bertrand, she remembered the name. She dug up the book, and she gave it to him. Well, what happened is that the CIA heard about this, and there was a guy who remembered seeing Shaw that day at the lounge. Well, they got to him, because he had talked about it at a party. They got to him, and they talked him out of his story. So here you have the CIA actually stopping Garrison from subpoenaing certain witnesses, talking local witnesses 
out of their stories. And this, that was just the beginning. Because once it got to the time of the trial, the CIA actually had a ticker tape machine moved into the local CIA headquarters so they could follow the proceedings in real time. Well, why, I wonder why the CIA was so interested in this case, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> That's a heck of a good question. Because, as I note in the book, the Garrison Group, this was an interagency group inside the CIA that was organized in September of 1967. There were about six representatives from various offices within the agency. We actually had the documents on this now. And at the first meeting, James Angleton's assistant, Ray Roca, who was keeping all kinds of tabs on the assassination, he came out and said, words to the effect, if Garrison is allowed to proceed unimpeded, Shaw will be convicted. And that's the last thing in the world that they wanted to see happen. And so what happened later is that when there were about three meetings of this group, and then from the record that we have, Richard Helms, who was a CIA director yeah. at this time, his ex executive assistant was Marchetti. And Marchetti would say that whenever this subject came up, Helms would direct him not to take any notes. And he would say something like, uh, we'll continue this in the deputy's office, or we'll continue this later on, you know, et cetera. And so what happened, of course, was that Helms was using the intelligence gained by James Angleton, who was chief of counterintelligence, to go ahead and actually direct this obstruction. And how do we know this? Because Bob Tannenbaum, who was the deputy counsel of the first phase of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, yes. told me that he actually saw these documents out of Helms' office in which they were surveilling and harassing Garrison's witnesses. And so I used I, some examples of this in the book. On the eve of the trial, Richard Case Nagel, one of the most important witnesses in this entire case, has a hand grenade blown, blown up at him in New York City. He brings a hand grenade down to Garrison and says, I don't think it'd be smart for me to testify. And then there's Clyde Johnson, okay, who was an, an important witness. Garrison speared him away out of New Orleans at a small university. Before he's supposed to testify, he has a living daylight beat out of him, and he's in the hospital. Aloysius Habakorst, who was a witness to Shaw's alias, the day before he's supposed to testify, a truck runs him over. One of the Clinton witnesses has the windows blown out on his pickup truck. This is how serious these guys were, that Garrison was not going to win this case. Well, Jim, let's take the plunge. I know I'm, I'm going to ask you to go out on a limb just a little bit here because people are always curious about the who done it, who's responsible. We've been talking for over an hour about right-wing connections to that go to Oswald, the anti-Castro connections that are connected to the right-wingers that go to Oswald, the fact that uh, the Bay of Pigs uh, uh, anti-Castro Cubans keep surfacing again and again. Connected to all of that is the CIA. And as you're pointing out here, they're actively involved in derailing the case made against Shaw, who himself obviously had some connections. Let's name some names here about you know, the CIA people that clearly have some connection to this case all by all of what we learned over the decades. Well, I guess one guy to start with is um, Sergio Ocaccio Smith. Okay. Uh, Sergio Ocaccio Smith was the local head 
of the Cuban Revolutionary Council, was a friend of Guy Bannister's, was a friend of David Ferry's, who knew uh, Clay Shaw. We remind you, dear listener, that David Ferry was the curious pilot who flew missions for the CIA over Cuba. He'd known Oswald since the latter was a youth and was part of Guy Bannister's private eye office that was manipulating Oswald in the summer of 63. And he was seen not only with Bannister and Oswald, but also with Clay Shaw. When uh, the Garrison case uh, broke international news back in 1967, David Ferry was, for a brief period of time, the most suspicious character that Garrison was going after. However, two days later, he died of natural causes. In a somewhat unusual twist, however, he did type up two suicide notes before laying down to spontaneously die. It's very, very odd that in late 1962, early 1963, uh, Sergio Cotter-Smith moves to Dallas. Okay, there's a, a scandal inside the local CRC. They accuse him of embezzling funds. So he leaves New Orleans, goes to Dallas. A couple of days before the assassination, at a kind of seedy bar on the road between northern Louisiana and Texas. There's a famous incident, which Oliver Stone actually used in the prelude to his film. Yeah, tell this story, by all, by all means, yes. This woman named Rose Sheremy, who gets thrown out of this car with these two Cuban exiles in it. And she gets picked up by a state trooper named Francis Fruget. Fruget takes her to a private hospital who will not admit her because she doesn't have any money or any insurance. And then he transports her to a public hospital. On the way to the public hospital, she starts talking about this plot to kill Kennedy, how it's going to happen, and how these two guys she was with was, were talking about it. So Fruget thinks she's off her rocker. You know, he doesn't make anything of it. So she goes up to the hospital. She says the same thing to one of the doctors at the hospital. Yeah, apparently several doctors at the hospital that came up surface later, too. Yeah. So what happens is the day of the assassination, when Fruget hears about it, he goes, holy, she was telling the truth. So he calls the hospital, says, don't let that woman move until I come up there. Yeah. Okay. So he goes up there, and he wants to turn her over to the authorities. And he asks her more questions. So she goes, oh, this whole thing about Ruby not, only, not knowing Oswald, that's ridiculous. I saw them together, et cetera, all right? And so then he, he, he gets her down. He calls the Dallas police, tells them the whole story. I got this woman here who predicted this was going to happen. <laughs> and the Dallas police said they didn't want any part of it. I love, I love that. Right? Not interested. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't sound very interesting to us. <laughs> the capper to this is that when Garrison reopens the case, he gets a letter from a guy who talked to one of the doctors up there telling him the story that this doctor told me about this woman. So he gets onto the trail. He gets Fruget. He goes, what was the name of the bar she was at before she got thrown out of the car? He tells him, take this stack of photos, show it to the bartender. So they take it over there, he puts the photos, he picks two photographs, Sergio Arcacia Smith and Emilio Santana, who was a good friend of Sergio Arcacia Smith. So here you have 
a direct connection between New Orleans and Dallas on the eve of the assassination. Now, does it get any better? Yes, it does. When the House Select Committee interviewed the Fruget, they're interviewing him about Jeremy, and he gets to the part about Sergio Arcacio-Smith. And he says almost in passing, by the way, did you guys hear that Sergio Arcacio-Smith had diagrams of the sewer system under Dealey Plaza in his apartment in Dallas? Uh, no, we didn't hear that. Because I think it was either Wade or Fritz. That told me that's the DA and the, yeah. and the detective chief right. investigated the case. Let's refresh the memory of our listeners, too, about this remarkable character, Smith. The day after Oswald shot, Monday, I guess it's November 25th, the FBI is calling up this character, Guy Bannister, who Oswald apparently was working for in New Orleans, and they're asking about Sergio Acacia Smith. Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe he was renting a, a suite across from me. This is the same suite. The Lee Harvey Oswald, supposedly pro-Castro communist, is occupying shortly after it's being occupied by Smith and his gang of anti-Castro Cubans. A rather unusual turn of events. Right. So Sergio Arcacio Smith is definitely, I believe, one of the people involved in the, the mechanical end of the plot. Yeah. Another guy I believe was involved at the little end is a guy named Bernardo de Torres. Yes, tell his story. Bernardo de Torres was part of the brigade that invaded Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. He later was, he was captured, then he was returned, and he began to be closely involved with the Central Intelligence Agency. And what happened is that when Garrison begins investigating the case, the Torres comes in from Miami, and he says, hey, I heard you were reinvesting. Hey, I, I think I can really help you. Okay, so Garrison unwisely, you know, decides to go ahead and employ him. <laughs> and he starts working Florida for Garrison. Now, within 24 hours of Ferry's death, there was another related death. The death of a guy named Eladio de Valle. De Valle was had worked for Batista in Cuba and had gone to the United States when Castro took over and was heavily involved in the anti-Castro-Cuban activities. The report that Garrison got when Davale died within 24 hours of Ferry, was that he was shot and his body was cut up gangland style within the close vicinity of Bernardo de Torres' apartment. <laughs> what a coincidence. Well, yeah, I found out later from an agent for the House Select Committee yeah. that de Torres was filing reports on Garrison with the Miami CIA station. Here's the capper. When the House Select Committee found out about the Taurus. They interviewed somebody who knew the Taurus, and this guy said that the Taurus has photographs of Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination. He has them in a, state, in a security deposit box at his bank. Time Life offered him about thirty or $40,000 for the pictures. This is back, of course, in the 1960s. You know how much money that is today. And he wouldn't give them to them. He was posing as a photographer that day. And there was one, one more thing about it. That particular informant said that DeTorres knew that Oswald didn't kill Kennedy because DeTorres knew who did, and they were talking about it before it happened. So there's another guy who's in Dealey Plaza who I suspect was part of the mechanical end of the operation. The book is Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, 
and the Garrison case. Be a good time to take a short break, so let's do so. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got plenty more with James Diogenio. Stick around. <laughs>